This is Hypercritical. This is a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. As we say here, nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about uh, by my co- and perhaps improved upon by my co-host John Syracusa. Nosy, I'm Dan Benjamin. This is episode number 33. I'd like to say thanks to EasyDNS.com and MailChimp.com for making this show possible. And of course, as always, bandwidth for this episode has been provided by Midas Green Technologies, virtual private servers submerged in oil. Go to mindscreentech.com slash 5x5, find out how to get some free bandwidth. And here we are, John. It's September of 2011. We have, uh, you were saying you don't know what we're going to talk about. Yeah, just got a list of stuff. There's a bunch of links in, uh, already in the show thing. I didn't put all of them there, so you must have put some there. Yeah, Maybe Faith did. All, I did. All I do is think about this show, day and night. Yeah. Uh... I guess I have a little bit of follow-up, and then we can pick what we want to talk about okay. after that. Sure. So this is kind of a repeat of last week's follow-up, where I talked about the 27-inch display that I said it was a 30-inch display, and I talked about how the URL said slash displays, but this is the only one they sell. Right. Well, I was quickly corrected. This is not the only one they sell. They still sell the old 27-inch that doesn't have Thunderbolt. Really? And I'm assuming I'm assuming they do that because there are some Macs that don't have Thunderbolt ports, and I, you, I think you can't use the the new one where the Mac doesn't have a Thunderbolt port. That was the theory proposed to me. I don't know if it's true. So you're, anyway. so you're saying you could go out there today and buy, there are two models of the 27-inch, but there are no. there is no 24, there is no 30. They're just 27-inch right. variants. Yeah, and one of them has the, you know, the Ethernet and the FireWire ports and stuff in the back on the other one. Uh, and a Thunderbolt connector on the other one just has mini display port, which even though it's the same shape connector is actually sort of a different thing. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that was the only legitimate piece of follow-up. And then I have a bunch of miscellaneous stuff. Oh, I guess one more thing. The Mac Ruby people are still... I shouldn't call them Mac Ruby people. They're not Mac Ruby people. They're people who... <laughs> are they not Mac Ruby people? Mac Ruby. Why are they not they're, not? they're not like involved in the development of Mac Ruby. I don't even know if any of them use Mac Ruby. Oh, but I see. my continued insistence that it's bridgy, like a bridge, uh, is uh, come under fire. Some people are saying, according to my definition of bridge, that would make Objective-C a bridge. Or C plus, Objective-C++ plus a bridge. Uh, I don't want to go through all this again. I, I just want this topic to go away. Uh, I, I asked the people who talked to, to me about it on Twitter, like, so do you think MacRuby should be the next language or that it will be? Uh, and no one has really said that they think it will be. And as for should, I don't think I got any committers on that either. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what their objection is. Uh, if they if they don't think that there's any indication that it will be the next language, and none of them are willing to say, oh, yes, 100%, it definitely should be the next language, uh, I guess they just don't like me calling it a bridge. So maybe I'll pick a different word for it. I don't know. But we'll see. You know, this could all come around at WWDC 2012, and, and they announce that that's the new language. I'm sure we'll have a whole big show about it. Wouldn't that be great if they did that? I don't know. It would be something. It'd be different. Yeah. Um, so what else do we have in the follow-up bin? I just have a bunch of small things that aren't technically follow-up that are just mini topics. Uh, so let's go right to figuring out what we're going to talk about today. I mentioned last week that we could talk about uh, what ails Microsoft. And then, of course, there's Markdown lurking there. So which one of those interests you as well, the... I mean, I, I could continue to put off the Markdown one as long as you would like, but... Uh... People seem to be interested in that. They seem to, like, that's the one people crave. 
Yeah, that's that's the problem with like putting it off. When I put off a topic, it's because I don't think it's that interesting. It's not because I'm withholding information to try to make people want it more. It's it, if it was really exciting and interesting and needed to be talked about, I would talk about it. It gets pushed off because I think it's boring and not that great. But we'll do it just to get out of the way. How about that? I think it sounds good. All right. So uh, for the people who don't know what Markdown is, mm. uh, it is a format for writing text, uh, a formalized form of writing text that gives you something in the end. So this is, this is created by our friend John Gruber, who does a talk show. Uh, you can go to his website, daringfireball.net slash markdown. I believe we'll redirect you to slash project slash markdown or something. But anyway, you'll find it. Uh, and here's, I have a couple of snippets quoting from his markdown pages, rather than me trying to explain it, uh, what I think the intention was. He just comes right out and says, here's what the intention was of markdown. So uh, this is a quote. Markdown allows you to write using an easy-to-read, easy-to-write plain text format, then convert it to structurally valid XHTML or HTML. You can tell how long ago that was written by the fact that he says XHTML, which no one really right. talks about. HTML or, or XHTML. No, it was XHTML first, and then parentheses or HTML. Mm. I would think he would need some... Some He's updates, updates and that. edits, yeah. You yeah. say HTML5, no space. All right. uh, so, so that's the idea. And uh, if you look at what Markdown looks like, I'll give you some examples. So it's like uh, if you write a word with little asterisks around it, you know, shift eight, uh, that word will become bold. And if you put underscores before and after the word, it will become italic. It's kind of the way people write in emails when they didn't have styled text back in the plain text email days. So if you wanted to emphasize the word, you put the little stars around it. Well, Markdown formalizes that and says, if you write that and you run it through a markdown processor, when we see those little stars, we will replace them with little B tags around your thing. Uh, and the same thing with I tags and so on and so forth. And uh, of course, like it does paragraphs for you. So you just type uh, the return key twice to break up paragraphs as you naturally would in a plain text type of email. And then when markdown goes through it, it puts the little P tags around everything. And same thing with headers, there's little ASCII formats for all this stuff so that it will convert it to HTML. Um, here's another quote from the thing saying, what's, what's the point of this? Why, why does this thing exist? The overriding design goal for Markdown's formatting syntax is to make it as readable as possible. The idea is that Markdown formatted documents should be publishable as is, as plain text without looking like it's been marked up with tags or formatting instructions. So that's very different than a lot of other markup languages like HTML or anything else. The idea is that like a plain text email or a Usenet post from way back when, uh, you should be able to take something that you wrote in Markdown and just, and just send it to someone, have them read it, and not have them say, oh, my God, what the heck is this? Am I looking at, you know, raw binary format? or is this? Because if you sent someone an HTML document marked up with HTML, it's just it's noise to their eyes. They wouldn't expect to read it. But if you send your mom something written in Markdown, maybe she wouldn't know what the little stars mean. But, like, eventually you pick up that stuff kind of culturally and you can understand uh, the text. And, and things like the paragraphs is the big point because everybody has paragraphs. You, well, hopefully everybody writes paragraphs. You write something, you hit return twice, and you write something else, and you hit return twice, and it breaks up your message into a series of paragraphs. Those aren't marked up. Uh, and so it's very difficult to come up with a, a markup language like HTML or anything like that. It doesn't, at the very least, like even if you use no styled text, no bolds, no italics, just plain text, you'd still need the little P tags, and that's ugly and confusing, and people won't know what it means. So that's the goal of Markdown. It should look like it should be usable exactly the way it is. It shouldn't just be this like internal compiled format that only a machine is ever meant to read. It's human readable. All right. Um, and at the very end, this is another little snippet that, uh, from that page I want to point out where he says, 
Markdown is two things. One, a plain text formatting syntax, and two, the software tool written in Perl that converts plain text formatting to HTML. So he's defined this format, and then he's provided this tool that if you take text in this format and feed it to this tool, also called Markdown or whatever, it will spit out HTML or XHTML at your, at your preference. Uh, so as you can imagine, there's lots of people who use this for various things. Uh, Gruber uses it to write his blog posts. You know, he writes... When he writes it, he writes it in Markdown, and then it gets converted in, into HTML that appears on his uh, web pages. Right. And lots of other people use it for the same thing, like forum posts or, you know, any, any place where uh, Stack Overflow is another example or any of those uh, sites, those Q&A sites, where when you write your question or your answer, you write it in Markdown format instead of writing in HTML or whatever. Um, all right. So lots of people like Markdown. Lots of people use it. It's are, are there we should are there alternatives to this? Are there other things that people are using? People are. When I was saying I was going to talk about Markdown, many people are sending me suggestions. You should also compare it to X or take a look at Y and see how it's different to Q and Z. There have been tons of these formats. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind uh, that I know about, I'll talk about later. But Textile is one of the ones that was mentioned to me. Uh, right. There's a couple of Markdown variants like Multi Markdown or. Lots of alliterations, mega markdown, blah, blah, blah. Like where they take markdown and add one or two things that they think shouldn't be there or whatever. Um, and, and a lot of people like it and a lot of people like to have that feature. So if you're writing anything that accepts user input, this is an eternal problem. Like back in, way back in the day when you're writing web applications, and, and inevitably you would put a box in front of a user and say, and then they're going to type their stuff here. And people want to type more interesting things than just even if even they're just typing text, your first problem was, I'm going to put a box here and people are going to type stuff and then they're going to hit a button and then what they type is going to appear on my website. Like that was the beginning of, I guess, Web 1.0. And even if you just do that, you can't just take what they type literally, like the, the, the characters sent by the browser and show that on a web page because it'll all run together because white space doesn't have the same significance in HTML as it does inside that text field when you're typing. Right, right exactly. So at the very least, you have to wrap it in p-text, which isn't rocket science, but it can be done. Uh, and then if you were a good little Web 1.0 programmer, you'd remember, oh, yeah, and I got to escape all of the characters that are meaningful to HTML, so they show up literally. So if someone writes one less than two, it doesn't think it's the beginning of a two tag, and screw up the rest of the thing. Uh, and inevitably, people wanted to do, because at this point, Web 1.0 world, people had already been on Usenet and stuff like that for a long period of time. And these conventions about bold, italic, and stuff like that had been around for a long time. Where not, not that the fact that it was bold, but the people wanted to write, you know, I really like this, and really has little asterisks on either side of it to emphasize the really, right? And same thing with the underscores, they were less common. But those things existed. So people would write that in little text boxes, and then it would appear on the website. And they'd say, you know what? This is HTML. It's not Usenet. It's not ASCII. Why, why can't that appear as a proper bold tag. So uh, eventually the savvy users learned that the bold tag exists and they would write, you know, less than B greater than and then really and less than slash, you know, B greater than. And they would submit it and it would show up on the type on the site with a tag showing because the good one, web 1.0 programmer had escaped this stuff. And they would say, that's not what I wanted. I wanted to be bold. I didn't want to see the little B tags like I did. I mean, when I, obviously when I was typing in the text field, I saw the little tags but when it appeared on the website. I didn't want it to appear as proper styled text. And the Web 1.0 programmer, if he was uh, a little bit naive, would say, okay, sure, I'll let you do that. And I'll stop that escaping thing. And I'll say, okay, everybody, you have to write HTML in this field. Or maybe a checkbox that says, if you're an expert, check this and you can write HTML. And that just opened a gigantic can of worms. Because, first of all, people don't know what that checkbox does if they don't know HTML. So they would check it or not check it or be confused about it. And then they would write a less than sign or 
uh, you know, something they wanted to be a literal less than sign and it would screw up their whole post and it would disappear, especially back when browsers were bad about recovering from errors right. in, in HTML. Uh, you could make the rest of your thing disappear. Right. And then you'd have like big scary one warning experts only, only do this experts, experts. <laughs> and then, you know, that lasted about two weeks until the expert figures out you can write like JavaScript <laughs> colon in your in your uh, image sources and run arbitrary text on people's browsers and right. you have all these security exploits and you're, you're making the rest of the page blink and become a marquee <laughs> or whatever the hell you're doing, you know. Right. And people start griefing the system. So then the poor 1.0 programmer says, 1.0 programmer says, okay, I'm going to, you're only allowed to use these tags and I'm going to filter it out. So you only use these tags, but then the people would find the holes and the guy's filtering syntax because he's using regular expressions to try to find anything that looks like the beginning of a tag. But it, this guy cleverly hit it with a Unicode entity or whatever. It's just, and then they said, all right, forget it. HTML is out. I can't handle this. Every time I try to get rid of the HTML and only allow B and I tags, the people find new ways to sneak in malware and the spam bots are attacking me. No HTML. No, that's it. I'm not allowing it. I'm only going to allow my own cool special languages. If you want to do bold stuff, put stars around it. If you want to do, under, do, do italic, put underscores. And I'll just look for the stars and replace them with I tags. So the only tags that will be in there are the ones that I put there. And I'm only going to put in I tags. I'm only going to put in B tags and P tags. With no attributes, end of story. And you do that, and then someone says, well, I also want to make links. Okay, well, here's a new syntax for you to make links. Put this thing here and put that over there, and you can make a link, and so on and so forth. And you end up inventing your own little language. And one of the earliest one of those is BB code. I don't even know what the BB, I guess it's bulletin board. But Yeah, well, wasn't uh, that for, for doing like the PHP BB stuff? I don't think PHP BB was the first, but there's a whole series of bulletin board software, like forums, where you know you would put a post and someone else puts a post, so on and so forth, and it appears on a page. Right. And they, they didn't want you to write in HTML for these same reasons. They said, we have our own syntax, which has grown to this gigantic monster. So you know HTML uses less than or greater than, but we use left square bracket and right square bracket. Mm-hmm. It's totally different. And when you want to do a link in BB code, it's left square bracket, you know, URL equals your URL, right square bracket, blah, blah, blah. And I is left square bracket, I, right square bracket. And, you know, you had to do the same thing with the ending tag, left square bracket, slash I, right square bracket to do it italic. <laughs> it's, so they made their own language that was basically HTML, but uglier, poorly specified, but had square brackets. It was totally different. So it was safe in that you could, you know, you weren't letting people write HTML, but you still had to go through and find all the square brackets and replace them with the HTML and so on and so forth. The, the idea was that that was somehow safer than doing HTML and just whitelisting the tags that you were allowed to do because I don't know why they thought it was better. Like in practice, it generally was because they would they knew what they were inserting. They were only if you were careful and you only inserted I tags, B tags, and P tags, and you never inserted any text inside those tags that was provided by the user, you could be relatively sure that they weren't sticking anything weird into your HTML tags. Uh, and you could just totally disallow, you know, and escape uh, less than signs and stuff like that. So that probably seems safer to them, but what inevitably happens as the language grows is they say, okay, if they write a, a URL tag, I'm going to let them do name value pairs as attributes, and I'm just going to stick those attributes into my ahref tag. And then you, once you allow tainted user input into your HTML that you're producing on the page, you're back to the same situation again. So it's not an inherently safer strategy. It's just the way they started implementing it was initially safer and may still be. So BB code is very popular, and there's lots of variants in that. There's square bracket, colon, smiley, whatever. Like, you can do tons of little weird animated GIF characters. Like, the language expanded. It's probably bigger than HTML at this point with the number of weird formatting things you can do. Uh, Markdown was kind of like a reaction to that, where if you're going to pick some format, you, you know, it, uh, Gruber, I would imagine, didn't want to write in HTML. Obviously, it would have just done that. But, you know, the existing ones just seem like too much. Like, if you write a, a, coast, uh, a post in BB code, it can look like 
it's marked up. Like it looks like HTML but with square brackets. That's, and it's not it's not nice. You couldn't send a BB code formatted, really complicated thing to your mother and expect her to read it and think, oh, that's just a nice email. She'd be like, what are these square brackets and these long things all over the place? I don't like that. You know, it d- doesn't look like text. So Markdown is minimal. At the whole, this is what differentiated. I think it might have been the first one to do this, to, to reject the notion that I'm going to create a language that's not HTML, but lets you do almost everything that you can do in HTML. Markdown explicitly does not let you do almost everything you can do in HTML. Uh, it, it has a very limited syntax. And the, the other thing about Markdown is like, since he's using it to do his posts, he says, well, but I'm not trying to protect myself from myself. Right. He's, not, he's not concerned he's going to do something terrible. Right. So it also lets you just write HTML. In a Markdown post, you can just say, okay, now I'm going to write HTML. Right. Because he's, it's, not, it's not a security exploit. So this is... Now, obviously, once you start doing that, it becomes, uh, you know, it's not as readable as possible. It's not publishable as is in the sense that someone could look at the plain text and view it. But that's the that's the pragmatic part of the the language that you're allowed to write HTML, but it, but, but you shouldn't have to because the things you want to do ninety percent of the time, there's some nice syntax for it that would look fine if you just showed it to somebody. Uh, so, as I mentioned in earlier. Uh, discussions of this topic, uh, I, I don't like Markdown and I don't use it. Uh, and people want to hear me explain why I think you get some exciting thing. It's not that exciting because <laughs> it's not that Markdown is bad. Everything I described makes it novel and very popular with a lot of people because it was, uh, it was at least one of the first popular formats to take this particular philosophical stance about not expanding to be the language to do everything, but also allowing you to put HTML in and stuff like that. So that's that's what made a novel and probably, you know, the popularity of Daring Firebar and so on and so forth. So it kind of got that network effect and snowballed and a lot of people use it. And if you use it and like it and it suits your needs, good. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not going, I'm not arguing to try to dissuade you from using something that you like. Uh, uh, but I, I will explain why I don't use it. Right. And I don't think that's a I don't think I'm a common case. Uh for, for a lot of purposes, for the common people, I think it is probably the best choice. Like, for example, for Stack Overflow, or maybe not Stack Overflow, but there's a whole bunch of Stack Exchange sites that are Q&A sites about uh, other topics besides programming. You know, there's there's, there's a, a site for bicycle enthusiasts, and they don't know anything about programming, and they shouldn't be expected to know or understand HTML. Markdown is probably the right level for just general type into an input box, and here's some simple rules you need to know to do stuff. It has enough where a new person will eventually learn, for example, how to make a hyperlink. And they can overcome that hurdle. But if they don't know that in the beginning, they can just write the way they normally would and it will work out fine. Uh, so wh- why I don't like it is the same reason I don't like BB code, which could have picked up before with my little rant about the square brackets, is that I already know HTML. And I knew HTML way back in the day. Uh, so why would I want to learn your other language that's like HTML but with different syntax. And there are 10,000 of these languages besides BB code and textile and so on and so forth. It's just one more thing for me to learn. And if the result's going to be HTML anyway, I don't want to spend the time to learn your particular syntax. Now, that's mostly true of BB code. Markdown, it's like, well, you already know the syntax. These are the things you were doing in plain text on Usenet in 1992 anyway. It's not like you need to learn anything. Uh, and uh, again, the philosophical difference where this is not supposed to be as big as HTML. is not that much to learn. Why not just use Markdown the way you want it? Uh, I still find myself wanting to use HTML even for stuff like linking because uh, for the, big, the big attribute of uh, Markdown that lets it be readable as plain text is you can put little 
square bracket identifiers next to the words you want to be linked or around them or whatever, and not have the URL, the potentially giant URL, inline in the text. Because every time you start getting URLs inline in the text, it becomes unreadable. Like you're reading a sentence and all of a sudden there's, you know, it could be hundreds of characters, literally, if it's some big giant URL. Right. You want to get that out of there. So it's like a footnote type thing. And then if you want to see what that links to, and again, people would do this in Usenet when they typed in plain text, they would, they would say, they would make reference to a particular thing, put a little footnote at the bottom of the document, there would be a little numbered or, or lettered list of footnotes that say this, this footnote links to here, this footnote links to there, so on and so forth, because people weren't doing HTML and Usenet. And so that's what Markdown does. It gets the links out of your text. Uh, now, that's only important if you expect people to read your what it is that you wrote with the links in it. And for my purposes and anything that I do, that's that's never the case. Even, you know, I said, well, don't you proofread what you write? As we discussed on the show about writing, I don't proofread it by reading the HTML that I typed. I proofread it by looking at BBEdit's preview window or in a browser or something like that. And that's not just because, well, obviously you have to do that because your source is all littered up with ahref things that wrap on seven lines. You know, you can't read it. That's why you should use Markdown. That's not the only reason I read separately. Read separately for that reason we discussed before is like when you when you're proofreading your own writing, a change of venue, a change of font, a change of margins, a change where the wrapping is and where the word breaks are will make you find errors more readily. For example, if you're missing a word at the very end of a line, it's very easy to miss that when you're proofreading because you read what you meant to write and quickly your eyes go to the next line and you keep going. But when it rewraps and that's in the middle of the line, you notice that you missed, you know, a two or a the or something in the middle of a line like that. And same thing with the fonts. When you see something in a different context, like with a proportional font versus fixed, because I'm writing in, in BB Edit in a fixed width font, but when I see it proportionalized, it's going to appear. It, your mind changes and you're able to find your errors more easily. So that particular advantage of Markdown doesn't help me. And the disadvantage, I think, is that I find it harder to make sure that a particular word links to a particular, to, links to the right place with the, with the footnote thing. Because you can do numbers or you can do words. So if you do numbers... Then you get like the basic thing where you got to leave gaps of 10 or something or make sure you don't repeat a number. Or what if you want to use a different number here? I did one, two, three, but then I got to put four right after one because I forgot that I wanted to link this word. So don't use numbers, use words. But once you use words, you start to get typos where it's like, oh, I mistyped this word or I thought I called this link this. And when I'm at the bottom of the document writing the URLs, I'm not spelling it right. You know, I'd rather be able to look at, because I do look at the source to make sure my links are okay. I look at the source and see that, you know, www.apple.com slash displays is where I wanted to link for this displays where, you know, you don't have to read the whole URL, but just you can just glance at it and see that, yeah, I linked this word to where I think I linked it. Whereas if you have the if you have the thing you're linking and the URL that it corresponds to widely separated, you have to go back and forth with your eyes. Even if you put a splitter in, you got to make sure that things match up and everything like that. I find that more cumbersome. And yeah, I guess you could put it in HTML and just mouse over every single link and I'll kind of do that too. But I do look at the markup while I'm typing it. I just find it easier to while I'm typing, type the phrase that I want to link and then select it quickly and do, I don't know which it is, what is it? Con Control Command A and BB Edit and then paste in the URL and that, that, that makes, it does all the ahref stuff for me. It's, it's not like I'm typing the left square, the left, uh, the greater than and less than signs manually, though sometimes I do do that. There are shortcuts in my editor that make that uh, not too cumbersome. Uh, so the second thing that makes me kind of fuzzy on Markdown, even for the people who do use it, is that it has the same problem that Perl, Ruby, Python, I guess. A lot of these modern scripting languages have is that, uh, not so much JavaScript, because JavaScript is an exception, but uh, Perl, for example, doesn't have a, a language spec. I don't think Ruby and Python do either, as in like a formal document 
that you could give to somebody and and they say this describes the language like I think JavaScript has one you know the ECMA standard this is JavaScript and you could take that spec and write an implementation that conforms to that spec same thing you do with C There's tons of people make C compilers there's a C spec you know C99 or whatever if you want to make a C99 compiler this thing explains exactly how you do it and uh, and that like it's it's independent of the implementation it's it's a spec dis- defined abstractly. Uh, but Perl is not. Perl is an executable written in C that when you feed it, feed it a text file, it interprets it as Perl code and it runs it. And what is Perl? Like the lowercase Perl, P-E-R-L, is the executable that runs your stuff. Capital letter P, Perl, is the language itself. But the language itself doesn't have a defined spec. It's a test suite that comes with a particular version of Perl, but it's not... You couldn't give someone a spec for Perl and say, okay, now make your own implementation of Perl. And all you need to know is a spec. You don't need to look at our implementation of it. You just need the spec. And if you conform to the spec, you will be compliant. Uh, that's not true of Perl. I don't think it's true of Ruby and Python either. They have, they're defined by their implementations. So Markdown, as, as uh, mentioned at the last little thing I quoted, it's two things. It's the formatting syntax, but it's also the software tool. And really, that official implementation, if you had to define what is Markdown, it's it's whatever John Gruber's Markdown.pl does. Now, tons of other people have made alternate implementations of Markdown in tons of languages, JavaScript and Ruby and PHP and, and everything. There's even alternate alternate implementation in Perl, I believe. And then multi-Markdown and the various variants of Markdown. So it's this whole world of things, and they all have the word Markdown in them, but they don't all behave the same. And the main reason they don't behave the same is, A, there's not a spec, and B, the official implementation isn't, isn't really a parser. It's just a series of regular expressions sort of successively applied and there's lots of heuristics in there. And, and you know, uh, Gruber changes his mind occasionally and fixes bugs and so on and so forth. So Markdown, if you wanted to define it, the only real definition you can say is whatever Markdown.pl does, that's Markdown. And that has changed over time and oh well. Uh, so saying that you're going to make a tool or something that conforms to Markdown, that uses Markdown, is kind of meaningless unless you say, well, what do you mean by that? What implementation of Markdown are you using and what extensions are, are applied to that thing? It's not... I guess HTML has the same problem. At least there are standard specs for that. It's, that, that just bothers me is that it's an ill-defined thing. And if I was going to build a tool based on it, I have to pick my implementation. And in my, in, in my interface, I'd, I'd say, you can put Markdown in this box and expect that everyone who reads that like understands. So I have to explain, like, okay, well, it's Markdown, but it's actually this variant of Markdown. It's this particular implementation. And if you're, if you're used to using Markdown and some other tool that uses a different implementation, maybe the thing you're going to do is going to behave differently because there's all sorts of weird edge cases. And except, like, it's not, I, I, it's not really a deterministic type of thing, especially over, over the long term where you can make, for, make things that could possibly confuse Markdown and you could file them as a bug and do Gruber and say, hey, when I do this, this thing really should be italic, but it interprets the underscore incorrectly when, in this particular context or doesn't make a bullet list this way, blah, blah, blah. Can you fix that for me? And if he spot fixes your pet bug, who's to say he didn't introduce a change in behavior that affects somebody else because somebody else had written another construct that was actually behaving a different way? Uh, without having a formal spec and a real parser, it makes it difficult to rely on Markdown the same way you might rely on, say, you know, HTML 4.0, which is well-defined. Now, in reality, this is not much of a problem because in reality, even though there's, there's a spec for HTML 4, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to comply to it because it's big and complicated. Uh, and in reality, where it counts, most implementations of Markdowns behave the same way. And there are, the extension ones make it clear that I'm not Markdown, I'm Markdown plus X, Y, and Z and minus PQNR. Uh, but it does make me wary to, for example, put all of my life's work in Markdown format 
with the expectation that the HTML generated from them today will be the same as the HTML generated from them uh, tomorrow. And I would even be wary to do that even if I was John Gruber and I controlled the Markdown implementation because unless you had never changed the Markdown implementation, you could, you know, five years from now, make some new construct that you want to add, put it in your markdown.pl and now realize that it breaks links and on some of your older content were you to run it through the uh, Markdown generator again. So I think that's about it for, for Markdown. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not anti-Markdown or against Markdown. I just don't use it because it doesn't fit what I do. Now, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a, a common case. Most people are not completely comfortable in HTML and don't have even know that the tool exists like BBEdit where you can see a real-time preview of the HTML that you're writing and so on and so forth. Uh, so it is appropriate for lots of applications uh, and uh, people like it. Good for them. It's just not for me. Well, you said that specs, there is no official spec, so that's that's fine. But specs and, and standards of rendering change all the time. I mean, the HTML that people wrote years ago might or might not look the way they intended it to in a 2011 browser. Uh, that's yeah, not really... It, an, I mean, sure, HTML that's a knock against HTML, a, but... HTML is much more complicated, but you could, in theory... Uh, let's just say you have something that's written for HTML 3.2. If you, if you ever wanted that to always display correctly, you've got the HTML 3.2 spec, and you could say, well, according to the HTML 3.2 spec, this is how it should be displayed. Uh, so in theory, you could, you know, programmatically say, oh, this is HTML 3.2, I have the HTML 3.2 spec, I will use the HTML 3.2 renderer, and it will never change how it looks, because I'm not using a renderer called HTML. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm rendering according to several different specs. Now, in practice, that's much fuzzier than that because it's like quirks mode and standards mode. It's not as granular as like, I know exactly which spec this is, so I'm going to fire up this particular spec renderer. But there are gradations in there where old content is treated one way and newer, newer content is treated another and HTML5 is treated yet another way because HTML5 actually defines the error conditions and stuff like that. But with Markdown, it's not like it's versioned. It's not like you're indicating to the parser what version, like there's no doc type header. Uh, and there's not, I don't think the format itself is even versioned. So you couldn't say, well, I wrote this in 2006. And in 2006, the current version of the Markdown spec was X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to parse it according to those rules. You know what I mean? You wouldn't be content, though, if you just had your own. You say, OK, you know what? I'm going to use this version of Markdown, and this is what I'm going to stick with for all the stuff that I do. And I don't care if they change the, the implementation later or not. This is what I use. This is what I use. I'm happy with it. Yeah, well, for your personal use, that, that will mostly be OK. But even in your personal use, like I said, you might be tempted a year later to add some new Gigo, especially if it's your own implementation and you're a programmer, you're like, oh, actually, I just want to have this new format where when you put a Unicode smiley face around words, it, it makes them blink or something. And or maybe not that, but like, I want to be able to do nested lists with uh, a mouse over something or like, I don't know, you want to add something and you and you to do it, you'd modify your implementation, not understanding that it may possibly change the way things in the past are rendered. It's also not an issue, by the way, if you have Markdown source that you generate HTML from and the HTML is never regenerated. If you generate it at once, it's fine, you know, but if, you, if you're relying on the fact that... You could you regenerate store, it later. Yeah, you could, re, yeah. You could regenerate it, it would look exactly the same. Then you need some sort of comprehensive test suite to make sure that you're not regressing. Yeah. It, without a spec, for, for languages like even for HTML, which has a spec and all, you know, it's very difficult to define, like uh, Markdown wants to be sort of do what I mean. Uh, and that's why it is the way it is. Perl is a similar type of way. You want it to just kind of like uh, read your mind, right? So it's very difficult to write down a formal spec. But that's, so you, the easiest formal spec to do and implement is the one that doesn't 
behave nicely. The one that just behaves like a machine. I was like, oh, that's stupid. That's not what I want. Obviously, when I do this, I want it to be this. But when I do that, you know, if a human looked at it, they could tell. So why can't you tell? And you, you say, well, if we just define it one particular way, it's really easy for the machine to implement. And they say, well, that's a crappy format. I'm going to use Markdown because it does what I want. Those are the most dangerous things to modify because the, that do what I meanism and those exceptions and special cases and stuff like that. Like, look at the Markdown.pl implementation. You can see comments in there and stuff that are like, it, sort of showing that it's trying to work, it's trying to be ugly inside so that you, the outside is beautiful. It's one of those, uh, that's a, a programmer a motto, the, the, the idea that when you're writing a library, you are going to write the most horrendous, horrible, like you're going to unroll loops, you're going to structure it weirdly, it's going to be confusing so that the users of your API don't have to see this ugliness. Like you're going to do all the sanity checking and marshal everything and so on and so forth. Where, you know, you, you make a wall and you say, I'm going to provide you what looks like a magical service. And inside, it might have to do some ugly things, but you don't have to know about them. And that's just, that's my problem. And you do a series of those layers, you get a bunch of nice tools. You want your tool to do that for you. You don't want to the tool to say, I am Lisp. You can use, you know, everything is data. Show me your parentheses and anything else you want to build on that, you got to build up from zero. Uh, you, it's nice to have tools that do all these fancy things on the inside for you, but those are the most difficult tools to modify. It's much easier when you push that onto the, the user to modify them and be sure you're not changing uh, the way it will behave down the line. Again, I, none of these things should be <laughs> to say like, oh, this is why you shouldn't use Markdown. If Markdown works for you, you should definitely use it. And it does have a lot of uh, qualities that make it better than you know, BB code and those other past formats. I don't know anything about textile in those. I looked at them briefly. They seem to not have the philosophy that the thing should be readable as is if you emailed it to your mom. Uh, and I, so I think that's still definitely a distinction of, of Markdown. You know, you should, you know, you someone should in the chat use. room says that Python does have a language spec. Ruby yeah. does not. And uh, if anything, that's a knock against Python. Are there alternate implementations of Python then? Who knows? I mean, there's alternate implementations of Ruby, but they're not, it's not based on a spec. They're, you know, they're just based on let's do whatever the, the real Ruby thing is. Well, the de, fa- the de facto implementation is, is the one Matt's did. That's just so a considered. The chat room said there are multiple implementations of Python. That's interesting. I see that as a knock against Python. EasyDNS.com. Since 1998, EasyDNS has been helping people register a web address, transfer domains, set up email forwarding, and of course, manage their DNS. Now, listen, this is, this is my advice. You can take it or not. You can take it or not. But I highly recommend you decouple your DNS from, uh, from your your especially if you use one of the kind of run-of-the-mill uh, registrars, which, by the way, I do. There's nothing wrong with that. But I, I, I recommend you decouple your DNS from that, decouple your DNS from your, your hosting provider, not because they don't do a good job. That's fine. But one day you may say, you know what? This host has been an excellent host for the last uh, five years, but you know, I'm, I'm ready to do something different. I want to do something different. Uh, it, it becomes a little bit of a challenge, to control your DNS and to control that migration if your previous host is running the DNS, especially if they're running it for you and it's out of your control. Oh, well, here you say this is where you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to learn DNS. I don't want to worry about how to, you know, I just, I like that simple form. Well, guess what? Easy DNS has all that too. And the genius is here, you can switch hosts, you can switch registrars, you can do whatever you want completely independent of your DNS. So you control it. You control it with a simple form, or you can have them help you do it. Real people answer the phone when you call. I, 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 they don't read scripts. They just want to help you with your problems. They just want to help things uh, move along swimmingly. You can go to easydns.com slash 5x5, and you will learn more 
about uh, special deals and, and just general good stuff for 5x5 listeners. So that's easydns.com slash 5x5. And you know what? I should mention this too. They're probably way more secure and way more reliable and have way more redundancy than uh, pretty much anybody else uh, out there, whether it's your registrar or another DNS provider. So go check them out. Love those guys. I'm looking at the alternate implementations of Python page that was posted in a thing, and duh, I should remember these from back in the day. Yeah, because you, you used to do Python. Python. No, it was one of the first languages to get try to get on top of the JVM and the Iron Python and the Python for .NET and all that business. Yeah. Uh, although this page that they linked to me, they said it was the language spec. It looks just like a reference to me. There's a difference between a thing that explains the language, like a reference, and and a spec for implement, implementers. You know what I mean? Like the I don't know. This is how the, the ECMAScript standard. It's not. You don't read that when you want to learn how to program in JavaScript. You read that when you want to make a JavaScript implementation. Whereas this Python language reference looks like it's written for people who want to learn how to write Python. It's not written for people who want to learn how to implement Python. Uh, I guess it's a fine line, and it does look reasonably comprehensive. But the implementation one is filled with like all those HTML spec W3C things of like implementations must do this and should do that and. In this case, you know, this is this case is undefined and so on and so forth. Whereas this is like, if you want to write Python, here's the syntax, here's how you use these different constructs. Uh, but the proof is in the pudding. There's multiple implementations. Again, there's multiple implementations of Ruby as well, usually running on top of different VMs like the JVM or, or CLR and stuff like that. But there's other things as well where people try to write. Uh, probably done it a few times too. They've tried to rewrite it in C++ or do alternate C implementations or write a version of it that runs on top of... Uh, other type of uh, VM environments. None of them have been successful. Now, Perl 6 is different. Perl 6 doesn't have a spec so much as it has. It's decided that its definition is we're going to make a test suite. And if your language passes this test suite, you are officially Perl 6. And your implementation can be whatever. You can write it in, you know, write it and write your implementation in Perl 5, write your implementation in JavaScript. We don't care. You pass this test suite, you are considered Perl 6. Uh, so that's a, a different way to go at it. We're like, we can't be bothered to write a language spec. We're going to write a language reference, uh, but our spec is this humongous test suite. And I would imagine that's true of these alternate implementations as well. Like, how do they tell that they've done it successfully? Well, they probably have a series of t- tests or the test suite from the language itself. And they say, well, we'll run the actual implementation of Ruby or Python against it, and then we'll run our thing and see if we get the same results. Uh, I remember it was, it, was a while, it was exciting when the first Ruby implementation that wasn't MRI, that wasn't Matt's Ruby interpreter, I was first able to run Rails because in the beginning when they were it's sort of infants, they're like, well, it's Ruby, but we can't quite run Rails yet because we, we don't have this corner case exactly the same way as the real Ruby interpreter does it. And eventually they get up to speed and was able to run Rails. It was a big day, big day for the Rails community. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was. feels like not that long, but it was. Rub- Rubinius. Was that the first one to do it? No. I just I think, like, to say, uh, I just like they, saying they, it, Rubinius. They, Maglev has got the best name, that's a cool name. All right, so that's Markdown. I was, yeah, I thought that would be It wasn't quick. that bad. It wasn't that exciting, yeah. I, I for the record, do use Markdown. Uh, I use Textile as well. No, no it's for it doesn't really use, matter to me. Do you, when you use the, the, the Markdown thing, do you ever have this problem? Because I've tried to use Markdown a few times, and this was maybe it goes away after you use it for a while. The thing of, like, keeping track of what links to where since they're separated in the footnotes. Does that ever bother you at all? I, well, see, I don't do it that style. I do inline links. Yeah. So once you're doing inline links, that's, that argues it's like, well, then why not just write HTML? Especially, again, you haven't gotten into all of the little keyboard shortcuts that BBEdit does. So BBEdit has a big set of 
shortcuts that you can define for quickly adding markup. Like you don't have to write the tags yourself. Uh, obviously, there's menu commands and palettes and all that stuff for BB Edit for doing markup. But that's slower than typing in most of the cases. What you really need to do is eventually figure out what are the six or seven tags or constructs that you use most frequently and assign them to keyboard shortcuts. And eventually those keyboard shortcuts get drilled in. And that's just so much faster than, right? And I guess you can do the same thing with Markdown. But uh, again, once I start once I start doing stuff inline like that, I'm like, why aren't I just writing HTML? Because now, now it's unreadable to me. Now I can't look at it. I have no chance of looking at it inline. Well, see, and, that's an, it's an interesting argument that, that you make. But you also kind of have the assumption that people are always and you know what i think you're right by the way this is probably an accurate assumption to make most of the time but the assumption that you make is that people will be using the same tool configured the same way everywhere that they go so that means if they have you know one one computer that they do all their stuff on they can they can configure everything and it's just going to work great but what if you've got a Windows machine at work and uh, an iPad that you travel around with and a Mac at home and an iPhone with you? Um, and you know what? You may want to write in a consistent way across the board doing, you know, I'm not, I, again, I'm not, I'm neither a, a defender of nor a, you know, a, a anti-markdown, but using something like that where you don't have to set up and remember, and I'm, I'm the type of guy that, the fewer the fewer customizations I can make to my in development or writing environment, the better. So uh, you would find on my machine there is zero customization. There is zero keyboard shortcuts that I've done, with one exception. I would I like for either Launch Bar or Quicksilver, which you got me using again. Uh, either one of those, I like it to be Command Space. So I will disable the built-in Command Space Spotlight Activator. Uh, just by unchecking the box. That's like the only slightly keyboard-related modification that I will make to the stock OS X implementation. That's it. I, I don't do any keyboard commands. I don't do any application-specific keyboard commands. I don't have triggers. I don't have macros. I don't install services. Why not? They save so much time. Why? Because I can sit down at any computer, anytime, whether they're one of the dozen computers in this office or my mom's computer, my wife's computer, whatever, and I have essentially the exact same environment. So I'm going to take the burden on myself. If, if I want to write something and I want to do markup, you know, maybe I'll use textile or markdown or, or even just HTML. But I, I will type it all. I remember I was doing a screencast for Jeffrey Grosenbach and uh, I was typing out the HTML while I was filming it. And he says, oh, you should really just, you know, let, let TextMate do that for you. Don't type it out. You know, TextMate has the things built in as you type, use the thing. He's like, why aren't you doing that? Like, not like you're stupid, you should do it, but just he was curious. And I said, you know, I don't use them in practice. I don't ever use them in practice. And he's like, well, that's one of the big time savers of TextMate. I said, yeah, but, you know, for me, I, I just... I'm maybe I'm old fashioned, but I like that portability. I'll take the burden on myself mentally, mentally, rather than take the time to create all of these things. Because if I were to then go and sit down in front of a, a completely vanilla machine, which happens to me frequently, regularly, then I'm like, oh man, where, where are my keyboard shortcuts? I got to set all those up. Oh, I don't have all these dot files that I use, etc. Whereas now I can just walk over there, sit down and start typing and it, it you know, if I if it's going to go through Markdown, I, I remember everything I need to know about that or HTML. So you think of the situation where you could be that happens the, to me the, daily. The, the most primitive situation you could possibly be in, where you are without your tools, right. without your comfortable environment. It's like the worst case scenario. That's me every day. That the time where you, where you 
have most the most possible impediments to your efficiency. Right. Every day. And that's and that's how you want to work all the time. No, that's how I frequently find myself. <laughs> what you were doing is you were finding the solution that you can use in the least efficient situation. Like your your level of efficiency, you're pushing you say, I, the, the worst case scenario, I'm gonna live like that all that's, the time. Even when, even when it could be better, I'm going to lower my efficiency artificially to the worst possible case scenario so that it's consistent. That sounds about right, because I find myself in that situation very frequently. I'm often using a computer that's not mine or that's not set up or that can't be set up or that doesn't have BB edit on it. And the other thing is like, and I still have to make an update to something. If the markdown argument only works in that case, if every source that you're going to shove text into understands markdown, if it doesn't, then you then you're constantly in need of the tool of, you know, markdown.pl or some other tool that converts your markdown. That's true. That's true. Or you just type it in HTML. Now, I think it's important to know how to use the default implementation. For example, I know how to get into VI. Yeah, but you would feel frustrated. And, you would feel frustrated stuff. using VI. Oh, right. But I know how to do it. Like, if I'm on a machine that doesn't have Emacs, I can use VI. And, and Emacs, I have all sorts of custom bindings from, from back in my uh, days in Emacs. Mm-hmm. But I know what the default bindings are. So if I end up on a custom machine, I don't have to. But I don't want to lower my efficiency to that level because 99% of the time I'm working on my one home computer and my one work computer. And I put in the time ahead of time to set them up. But yeah, so I think a, I think what you're saying makes more sense. I'm just uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, if that's your average, if you're if most of the time you're not on a computer that you you know you're on a strange computer, then yeah, you just have to that becomes your, deal with it. I just don't think configuring your environment to to be. Oh, here's the one case that you mentioned that I think is uh, definitely real. If I'm typing on an iOS device where I don't have a real keyboard, right. you do not want to be typing HTML on an iOS device. Oh, you will shoot worse. yourself in the head. Markdown is like, or anything, like you want anything to do the least anything is better than that. So yeah, definitely on an iOS device, it suddenly becomes like shifted characters. No, you don't want to do them. Even putting little stars for Markdown, it's a page. But P tags, forget it. You never, like it's just, it's impossible. Uh, you know, so in that case, I would definitely say if there's a, that's like an ideal environment for a minimalist uh, you know, very few formatting characters. I don't have to type anything uh, type of thing. Right. And who knows? Maybe Gruber's doing a lot of his posting from iPads these days or pecking stuff out in his phone. I know, I know he uses his phone. He's waiting for a lot, lot of stuff. This is part of his cover. He probably wouldn't, you know, this is something I've figured out over, over, over the years I've known him, is he'll go on, he goes on, I mean, like, I thought you went on vacation. He's on vacation constantly, but you'd never, I mean, technically. How can, how can you tell? You can't tell because what he does, he has his iPhone Life with him. a vacation. He's, well, <laughs> can't argue that. But he's, he's out there. He, he'll be out there, you know, on a boat or wherever he is, and he'll be, uh, he'll be posting. So I guess it's not really the same kind of vacation that people take when they completely turn everything off. It's but travel. He's away from his house. He's traveling. He's traveling uh, under the guise of, but it's all secret. You never really know it. Because he's still posting links and everything, he just does it from his phone. And once in a while, you can catch him. Once here's how you know if you want to get really fancy. This is how you can figure out. This is a secret, little secret. How you can figure out when he's uh, when he's gone is if if you're really on top of things and you read the links on that show up on Daring Fireball. Once in a while, one of them it'll be the mobile version of the website instead of the regular version. It'll be like m dot whatever you know you'll see that and you'll look at it and you'll look at it in your browser you're like why does it look like crap oh this is the mobile version that's a dead giveaway that he's posting on the road yeah he hasn't done that in a while but he, no, he does get the no, autocomplete me yeah once you know, in a that's while. another thing if you look for the autocomplete autocorrect yeah uh, things although with lion now doing watch that, out for that on uh mac os 10 he might that becomes less less of a differentiator so listen there's something else i want to talk to you about I mean, you may have other things on this list. I do, but go ahead. Well, uh, let me do the, we'll do our second sponsor. It's MailChimp. We love MailChimp. These are, uh, these are the easy email newsletter guys. 
And uh, they will help you design your newsletters. They'll help you share them on social networks. They'll help you integrate with services you already use. And they track the results. It's, uh, they, this is their term, but I like it. it. They call it a personal publishing platform. That's what they are. And here's the thing. I don't know how they do this. And I, I've said this in the spots before, but it really is mind-boggling to me. 12,000 emails per month, every month, for free, forever. So you can, you can do that. You can send 12,000 emails a month. I don't, I don't know how this is free, but it is free. You can check them out at MailChimp.com. There's never been a better time to sign up uh, than right now. Uh, I think they just acquired tinyletter.com, which was basically, it was like mail. It was like the, the little single gap that MailChimp had in their arsenal of tools, which was like tiny little letters for like small individual things as opposed to stuff for companies. They got them now. They're in there now. So you can go check that out. MailChimp.com. Love those guys. Big supporters of the show. So here's something. This just came out. It's a, you know we don't really talk about rumors and stuff. This isn't like a rumor show. Uh, but the, the this rumor came out, and then Bloomberg is running it. They're I guess they're credible, right? Sure, they usually have pretty good uh, success rate. Well, the, the this is all presupposed on top of a rumor anyway. But Sprint, which is uh, in for those who are not in, in the United States, it's I think it's the third largest U.S. wireless carrier. And they will be uh, selling the iPhone 5 in mid-October. And they have a deal with Apple uh, where they are going to try and distinguish themselves, apparently, by providing unlimited data service, or as you would say, data, uh, for, uh, for their, you know, that's going to be the big differentiator with, with Sprint. So this is all, you know, supposed stuff. But it, there was a question that came up on, one of the uh, one of the previous uh, shows, one of the other shows I did, I forget if it was the one I did at the talk show with John or if it was with Marco, uh, but we were talking about Sprint. The Sprint is a CDMA uh, technology, just like Verizon, right? I think so. Yeah. Okay, so you know about this because you're like a you know fancy engineer, or whatever. Uh, is there a different CDMA radio? That, yeah, I, heard, it, I heard you talking. Is it about a different this radio, or is it just tuned? Is it like you go into your car and you turn you turn tune the radio from ninety eight point seven to to one hundred one point one? The only thing I know about CDMA versus GSM is what I learned in as an undergraduate ages ago. So CDMA is code division, code division, multiple access, and it has to do with the the, the signals being sent, and each receiver decodes it according to their uh, code that's assigned to them to, to get their signal out from the mix of other things. I don't even know what GSM does. I think it's packets, uh, and I think it doesn't use, you know, we'll take seven different signals, combine them into one, so that and then on the receiving end, they'll be differentiated from each other. But what it comes down to for GSM versus CDMA is that there's different chips in there. It's not like they, they call it the radio. It is the thing that does the radio transmission, but something has to receive electromagnetic waves through the air and interpret them and get data out of it. And the chip that does that is very different. Now, what you were asking with Marco was among CDMA things, is CDMA from Sprint different from CDMA from something else? I can imagine it could be because the code division multiple access could use a different set of codes or different frequencies or, you know, other things could vary. Not, you know, the technique is is CDMA, but everything else about it could be different. Is this a software settable thing, the way you would turn a radio dial, or is it like a hard-coded thing? Do they all... Do they all use the same frequencies? I don't know if they That's use different not, spectrum. So if they use different spectrum, obviously spectrum. you have different different antenna lengths for different frequencies and stuff like that. But really, I 
I, I was in the chat room when you were talking about that with Marco. I didn't participate because I don't know. Marco didn't know. You don't know. I don't know. We need to get someone here who is an expert on the cell phone industry. So that knowing the, the vague technical underpinnings of the technologies tells you nothing about whether Apple needs to have a different chip. Now, my guess is, and as Marco's was and as everybody's was, uh, is that iPhone 5, there'll be one SKU. Or, you know, one at least one one motherboard, basically. They'll have different mounts of flash and stuff like that. So they're going to use a chipset that can do, it won't be 4G, but it can do GSM, CDMA, everything for every possible carrier. And if there's not one chip that does that now, like if someone says, that, you know, there's only a chip that does these three carriers and you can't do Sprint 2, I'm sure they got one made because they do not want to be selling a Verizon iPhone, an AT&T iPhone, a Sprint iPhone yeah. if they don't have to. If this deal was in the works long enough, then they should have made the iPhone, made sure the iPhone 5. Certainly, the iPhone 5 will do AT&T and Verizon with the same model. They have a chip so they can do both of those because those exist. If Sprint is different and if the deal like came around late and they have to make a special Sprint iPhone, then it'll be kind of like with the Verizon iPhone. We're like, well, this is a Verizon deal, but we've already got our phone out there, so we've got to make you a new phone that understands your network. Uh, but then the next version will fold it in. So if there is a separate Sprint phone, I would imagine in the version after that, they would fold it in. But Apple wants one phone that does all these different things. Do you think? Do you think then that uh, let, let let's say regardless of whether there's a separate version or a single version, you know, you're a guy without an iPhone. You've got you've got a lot of iPod touches. I do, and uh, you have no iPhone because you, we've gone into this. People, I'll have to I'll have to look it up, but uh, I forget which episode of this show you explain why. But there's definitely, uh, I, think it was like def- I think it was, yeah, it was early on. I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up while we while we do this, but. Uh, it, and that's a great show, by the way. And your reasoning is excellent. Uh, was that Frivolous Things? Yes, indeed. Episode 6. Um, Look at that memory. The, wow. Prosaic reasons for not owning an iPhone, for John's not owning an iPhone. So I'll even put this into the, I'll link, I'll link back. It'll be a self-referential link to listen to uh, episode 6 of this show to understand why John Syracuse does not have an iPhone. Would, would having an unlimited data, is unlimited data a draw? It used people. to be unlimited data back when I decided not to get one before everyone got caps. Yeah. So uh, I do like the idea of unlimited, but I, I bought a 3G access for my iPad when I was at WWDC, and I, there's like three plans, and I did that thing that you do, what is it called, uh, anchoring? The, Te- the, tethering? No, anchoring, where, where the, when, uh, uh, when marketers want to make you buy a microwave oven for 200 bucks. They put out a model that's five hundred, a model that's ninety nine, and a model that's two hundred, and, and that makes you pick the middle. Whereas if they just Anchoring. put out two hundred dollar microwave, you would say two hundred dollars is too expensive. So they make a cheap one that you're like, oh, I want to avoid that one, and they make a super expensive one, and they steer you to the middle. And anchoring is like the five hundred dollar one and the ninety nine dollar one kind of anchor the range in your mind of how expensive a microwave should be, and it makes a two hundred dollar one acceptable. Huh. Whereas if you just had a two hundred dollar microwave, you'd be like, oh my god, this two hundred dollars is too expensive, or whatever, whatever product or whatever price. It's a common anchoring. thing that, like, yeah, big box stores do. Anchoring is not just for prices. I think it's a, a psychological thing where your expectations are anchored by these two endpoints, and then the thing in the middle uh, seems reasonable. So, uh, I got that happened to me when I did uh, pick the three G data plan for my iPad too. There was like a cheap plan, and then like a big expensive plan, and one in the middle. And I picked the one in the middle because you know I'm human too. Yeah. Uh, 
And I real honestly didn't know what to expect because I had never used an iPad on the road before, and I didn't know how much data I would use. So I forget what it was. It was like who knew that it was so so easy to you were you were so susceptible to these marketing well, things. Yeah, well, you know, it happens. But it, so I forget what it was. Maybe it was two gigs or something like that. But whatever it was, I used such a tiny fraction of that. It was uh, granted, it was only for a week, but I was on that thing all the time. I, I watched Game of Thrones on Netflix on it in the hotel room one night. I mean, I wasn't like I was trying to be ban- conserving my bandwidth. And I didn't even come close to using like 2% of the bandwidth. So right. I don't, even though everyone's capping and stopping the unlimited plans, unlike my home connection where I really do need to have unlimited because, you know, I'm using like backup things that are sending gigabytes of data up to uh, backup services online. I could burn through my home bandwidth, but wireless even if I'm watching TV shows, I think maybe if I watched like five TV shows every single day, I would burn through it. But uh, I'm not too worried about hitting any of the caps. So no, unlimited data is not a draw for me. Uh, which is tougher on the backbone of the cell providers? Is it tougher to do data, or is it tougher to do voice, or is it the same? Is it? Are, and in fact, isn't isn't voice converted to data and transmitted the same way these days? So inevitably, everything will be converted to data. But for legacy reasons, some networks have separate channels for voice. It's not. So I knew you'd in, know. In, in, in both cases, it's not as if you have to pay the elves to carry your bits through the voice <laughs> network and pay a separate set. Of, like <laughs> it doesn't cost money to to push a bits through. They're not rocks, right? So you have to pay for the electricity to run to your equipment. Right. And yes, it does use slightly more electricity when data is going through it than when it's not. But it's not like carrying rocks or pumping water that's why it's good to be a carrier you know the equipment and the infrastructure costs roughly the same whether it's being used at 50 percent capacity or 60 percent capacity but you get 10 percent more money if you're if you're metering it right mm-hmm. so the, the incremental cost of carrying more data is very small so that's what they, that's how they make their money now they do have huge overhead for all this infrastructure they have wires and rooms full of machines and their electricity bills have to be huge like but what, it, what is, are, in other words, my question is, is it somehow more difficult or more costly for them to provide unlimited voice uh, than it would be with data? Or is it equally the, the same challenge, if, the same cost? If they have a legacy voice network and all their voice data is going, I don't think anybody's in that case. As, as you know, everybody at some point in the transmission is going to probably have that voice change into data because there are peering agreements between yeah. people and stuff like that. So yeah. I, I think the days of having a separate uh, analog voice channel and then connecting two things where... It literally doesn't cost them anymore whether the wires are in use or not are, are probably gone. Uh, this What they have is this historic pricing structure that separates voice from data. And that is something that people are used to and they're going to lean on that to make them as much extra money as they can despite the fact that it becomes increasingly poor match to the actual infrastructure. Mm. So I don't think anytime you see a pricing move about voice versus data, there's I don't think in this day and age there's ever any actual reasonable technological underpinning for that. It's all about what can we get away with charging and how can we shift our user base around in terms of who's able or willing to pay more money for what. Right. Nothing to do with how much it actually costs them to provide that service. Unless I guess, I guess unless you're trying to ditch all your old hardware. Like if you're going to go to data only and you want to push everybody onto 4G because your 4G network and infrastructure is better and you want to actually burn your old stuff or sell the copper in it or whatever, just get rid of the old stuff and just go all the fiber or something, then you can try to push people towards your new plan and there actually is a technological underpinning for that. But I don't know if anybody is doing that. I think these infrastructures you evolve over time. It's not like you replace old infrastructure with new one. It's just an evolution. 
where you replace some old equipment and put some new equipment on. You should get a show about someone in the telecom industry, someone who actually knows this stuff, because we all have questions about it, but none of us are really in that field. Yeah. I was hoping, I was hoping you would know a little bit more about it. Mm. Didn't you design antennas at one point? For no. Well, I did do a wireless thing as my uh, senior project, but I did the software part of that. Oh. Do you ever do one of those robot competitions where you build a robot and then you fight, fight the other robot? No, but wouldn't that be cool? You know what I was. I'd like to, do? to enter one of those with you as father and son. <laughs> Who would be the father there? The father and son team. Yeah. So you know what I would rather do rather than those like those bat- you're talking about battle bots and battle all those bots, those, sure. You know? And not the kind that have like the chainsaw, but what they do over in Japan where they do like little taekwondo moves or whatever, jujitsu, whatever it is. Play trumpets or do fan dances. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, but more like they punch each other, knock each other down, as opposed to the ones that we have here in the U.S., which is like this one has like a a bandsaw inside of it. And this one has a drill that flips the other one over and, you know, stabs its underbelly. That's not as interesting to me as the kind that's, it's more like I just, I knocked the other guy down, but somehow that's uh, more respectful. So the thing I always wanted to do as a kid was uh, based on this uh, Nova episode that showed a course at MIT. And I think it's an undergraduate course. I'm I'm sure it's still there. And at the beginning of the course, uh, you get a box full of parts and everyone gets the same box full of parts. Oh, I've heard about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they define a challenge, whatever the challenge might be. Like the Nova episode, the challenge was uh, who can get their ping pong ball uh, at the top of this uh, this ramp, that two-sided ramp, looks like a big triangle, right. uh, and keep it there or something. So both competitors, would they would have to build a device that would start at the bottom of the ramp, and they would both race towards the top of the ramp going towards each other, and they would have to drop their ping pong ball in between two lines at the top of the ramp and prevent the other guy from doing the same. And those are the only parameters of the competition. You're given a box of stuff that was like motors and chains and gears and plastic and a machine shop to, to mess with it in and electric supplies and tools and so on and so forth. And your finished thing had to fit within some volume, some particular invisible box. And that was it. And that's that's what I would want to do because that is, it's kind of like, first of all, it's smaller scale. Nobody can get hurt. It's not that complicated. You don't have to build like a robot ape or anything. Like You can build anything you want if you want to build. You know, was, a robot ape? Yeah, or anything complicated with articulated fingers and it's got to run on its own or it's flying or whatever. This, you know, the, the rules of the competition were anything you can build that can do this. If you want to build a giant crane that, right. you know, that, that moves over or you want to build something that's really fast and shaped like a wedge and shoves itself underneath somebody, you want, you want to build something that drills through the platform and, and, you know, comes out, you know, whatever you can build. Obviously, a lot of things are not possible because of the parts they give you, but everyone starts in the same playing field and, and, you know, you have to make good design choices and then implement them well. I'd always want to take a course like that, but I didn't, I didn't go to MIT, so I didn't get to you know, we could we could do our own thing here with as part of the show where we do yeah. this. Well, the best part of that course is you do it when you're in school and you don't have a job. I think it's more challenging to do if you do have a job. Yes, yeah, you're right. It is, but less fun. I think you get, it's more fun to call in sick from work. Oh, I'm so sick today. I, <coughs> I, mean, I can't come in. Ramp, but they had like a whole semester. To in build. the background, like your kids, stuff. Dad, the robot's ready. Oh, I'm sick. I got to go. I bet they have little kits like that for kids too, you know, where they just give you a box of stuff and you have to build something. But you really like an er- erector set? No, like a like a commercialized like version of that M- MIT course. Where say you're having a kid's birthday party, you give everybody a box of parts at the beginning of the kid's birthday party. And at the end, they have to see whose thing can climb up the wall the highest, or lift a weight the highest, or you know, it's kind of like the thing you do with eggs, where you drop them off the top of the building, right? Where you have to build the device that will keep your egg from cracking, cracking when it's dropped from the top of the school. That's very similar. Uh, I'll be a grade school type of thing where you get 
unlimited supplies like construction paper or whatever and you have to build something to protect your See, eggs. we never had that in my school we did what we did have was a thing where you had to carry around a sack of flour and uh, pretend it was a baby and i'll tell <laughs> you, you what i have two kids now that? that that is nothing like having a real baby <laughs> yeah i was so excited about having a baby when you know look it's just <laughs> gonna be like the sack of potatoes you just set it down or you know whatever but it's not like they need things all the time they need food and whatnot attention yeah turned out you, to be much harder than a sack of flour carrying that if you over. accidentally leave it in your locker at school it's oh. it's kind of more of a big deal yeah couldn't leave it there if it gets poked the flour starts to come out <laughs> <laughs> did you ever do that no i'd seen it done on television it's no fun trust me you don't want hope- that you don't want that class I have one more mini topic that I want to cover. Love it. Let's do it. This is an article that was on Ars Technica that I kept sending to Gruber that I cannot believe he hasn't linked yet. And I one of your him. articles? No, no. Uh, it's just an article. It looked like it was right up his alley. This is exactly the type of thing that Darren Firewall posts. And I'm sure he will eventually get to it. He has this strange, I don't know if it's like an intentional, like doling out of data over a period of time so it doesn't get all bunched up. Or he just has a really long backlog and just doesn't get to things. Uh, but this was a story by Peter Bright about Intel's $300 million initiative to get PC makers to build what they call Ultrabooks. Have you ever heard that term before, Ultrabook? Uh, Ultrabook. Yes. This is, okay, this is what happens. Hayata gets, basically gets killed or whatever. Ultrabook comes up and he's like, listen, I feel really bad about it. I'm going to give you this little thing. You you hit this button, You gotta, but you got to hide because people don't want to say, I'll show up. I'll take over for you. I'll save the world, whatever. You sort of go into suspended animation. But if I spend too long on the earth, uh, I'm going to start to get weak and everything to the sun. I'm going to have to fly back out into space. Happened, probably going to happen a lot. That's not it. That's different. No. Then I'm I'm unfamiliar with it. Ultrabook is, I don't know if it's Intel's term or just a generic PC industry term. It's basically a thing like the MacBook Air. Ultrabook is like a really thin, you know, as light as it could possibly be, really cool, sleek looking laptop. So uh, Apple made the MacBook Air and PC makers have tried to make like MacBook Air look like so on and so forth. But Intel, for whatever reason, is trying to encourage PC vendors to to make something that's competitive with Apple's laptops and not just in terms of thinness and power and stuff like that, but also price. And so this story, uh, what was the title of this story? Look up the... uh, Oh my goodness, I can't even find my window. So the gist of the story was, all right, so it's Intel's 300 million plan to beat Apple at its own game. They're trying to get PC makers to make a laptop as good as the MacBook Air. Uh, And the interesting part of the story is that historically Macs have been like more expensive. Yeah, they're cool and sleek and expensive and cool looking, but they cost twice as much, right? So here's a case where the PC industry has thus far failed to make a laptop that is looks as good as Apple's. This is cool and sleek and made of high quality materials and so on and so forth. And it's also cheaper, which is has not historically been the case. Usually they can match Apple or if they don't match Apple on quality, it's like, yeah, well, it's not quite as nice as the Mac laptop, but it's 300 bucks cheaper. Well, that doesn't happen with these Ultrabooks. And it goes into all the reasons why, like the PC vendors are, are built on this idea that you have interchangeable parts. So for example, the Wi-Fi card, there's like seven different choices for Wi-Fi cards and it's not on the motherboard. It's like a little clip-in thing. So once you start sticking stuff onto the motherboard, then you can't make it really thin anymore. If you want to make it really thin, you got to have one motherboard with everything soldered to it. You know, you can't put a 2.5-inch SSD on a MacBook Air. It just won't fit. So you have to use a disembodied thing, and it's got to be sort of custom-made for your thing. And so everything Apple makes is custom-fitted to its case. Like, if you look inside one of Apple's devices, 
there's not a lot of spare room hanging around in there. Yeah. Batteries are custom fit, so on and so forth. Whereas the PC makers, they don't want to make a custom battery. They want to have, you know, an interchangeable series of batteries they can use in a variety of laptops because they have 8,000 different models. And if you have 8,000 different models, you, you don't want to have 8,000 different kinds of batteries because then your, your uh, economies of scale go down and you have to deal with inventory management and so on and so forth. So it's like the PC industry is just not set up to make small completely integrated, everything exactly fits, everything is custom-made things, because even if it's a bestseller, it's not going to, they still have so many other products, whereas Apple makes, you know, two kinds of MacBook Air, 13-inch and 11-inch with a couple of little details that can change on the inside, but that's it, and they sell millions and millions of them. And the other part of the story was that, so this Peter Bright was trying to look at, uh, to, to buy himself a laptop that wasn't a Mac, uh, but that was as good as a MacBook Air. So he goes to the various websites like Dell.com and HP.com to try to build himself one. And he's fighting with those websites. I don't know if you've ever gone to them, but like they give you this strange way to pick what you want. It's like, are you a home user? Are you an everyday power user? Are you a super duper user? Are you, you know, are you a small business special enterprise user? It's like, it just, I want to pick a laptop. I don't know. You know, they make you come in through these strange, you know, divisions and you always think they're screwing you because it's like well if i go in through the high performance link they're going to screw me but if i go through the other link you know because those are the people who have more money or the enterprise people who get cheaper prices or they get more expensive prices or i don't you know so you end up getting to this big configurator thing that has eight thousand options and you can put this screen and this laptop or this wi-fi card and this thing and you know and sometimes the options aren't clear it's like what's the difference between this screen and that screen why is this 50 bucks more expensive it doesn't even explain what the difference is it's just too many options uh, and, and the websites are horrible and you never know if like the machine you configured is going to work well together uh, if you got the best deal or if it would have been smarter to actually start from a different model and upgrade the CPU and start with the better CPU model. Like, it's just a horrible buying experience. So this is kind of the chickens coming home to roost on the, the PC industry where uh, finally PCs have, have changed so much from the interchangeable box of parts that they used to be. And that was an advantage when your PC was like in your PC XT or PC AT case where you could pick your motherboard, pick your hard drive, pick how many floppy drives you want, pick the, the video interface you want, pick the case, pick everything about it and configure it. And the PC vendors were set up to have bins of parts and build you your machine like that or have a couple of presets and switch things in and out. But now when things are really small and really compact and become more like appliances, that's not an advantage to have to assemble your machine from little parts because it's going to look like a Frankenstein machine. If you want something... As skinny as a MacBook Air, you have to have custom design battery, custom design motherboard, custom design SSD, custom screen, custom hinge, custom case, custom everything. It, you can't share any of those parts with anything. Maybe you can share the keyboard, which Apple shares with uh, all its laptops, which I think I've complained about before. The ridiculousness of that same keyboard being on a 17-inch laptop with those big empty areas around it. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'll put the, the link in the show notes. I highly recommend people read this. Uh, it's kind of exactly... Uh, the reason I thought Gruber would link is because he loves to link situations where previous advantages of PCs now are huge disadvantages and especially stuff about like, you mean there's not a PC that's this size and it's cheaper, even if it's a little bit crudier quality, you know, people argue and they do argue in the comments like, well, you can find one that's the same price or close to the same price, but I was like, well, it doesn't have this, it doesn't have that. Or, well, it doesn't have this Bluetooth interface, but it does have this different video card, but this has, you know, DVI out and this has VGA out and doesn't have Thunderbolt and blah. You can kill yourself forever trying to do price comparison, but the bottom line is that it used to be trivially easy to pick any Mac of any spec and find a cheaper one in the PC business. And now, with, with the case of these small devices, it's not. And the same thing with the iPad. Where, where are the competitive tablets? It's the same type of situation. It's a really skinny thing with custom everything inside it. Where are the tablets that 
are as fast uh, as the iPad. Forget about software. Forget about the fact that iOS is better than the other OSs. Where are the tablets that are as fast as the iPad and cheaper? Fast at the same price? Faster at a little bit more price? Sure, but you don't find ones that are like, well, I can get you one for half the price is just as fast as an iPad. You can't. And then, of course, the OS makes a huge difference anyway. Even if you can find an Android Tegra 2 thing that's faster, you don't want to use that over an iPad. I mean, on, on paper, it may be faster, but in practice, it's not going to be as nice of an experience. So this is this is an interesting turnaround from the history of uh, PCs. HP getting out of the business, doesn't even want to build PCs anymore. And the people who are building them, Intel has to throw money at them to try to get them to build something that's competitive with what Apple's doing. It's not a technology thing. It's just a, your business is structured the wrong way. You're making us look bad. And they're like, well, how do you want us to restructure our business? We have to sell 8 bazillion models because that's what businesses want. But And if consumers don't like a tough luck, but if we make one custom model for consumers and we make it really cool and sleek and not enough people buy them, we just, we're going to take a huge loss in that because we need custom tooling and all these custom parts just for this one line of products for consumers. And if it's not a hit because there's 8 million other competitor products and we don't you know, stand out enough or ours isn't interesting enough or it's just another Windows machine, then we're going to lose money on the deal. That's why I haven't made them. It's not like they don't have smart people and don't have the technology. It just doesn't fit with their with their business model. And then maybe that business model is uh, going out of fashion and may not be uh, viable in the consumer space for a long period of time. Because like, what's going to happen five years from now when all laptops are basically look like the MacBook Air? They're all skinny and custom and so on and so forth. Like you, As things get smaller, your ability to use to have reusable parts across the line start to uh, diminish. Yeah. I don't know. I think they should just make all their laptops like MacBook Airs and screw with the businesses things. But that's that's the whole other topic about Microsoft. We'll save that for another week. That'll be a good one. Does that mean we're done? I think so. How come I never heard your uh, your mic breaking up? Did you unplug it while I was talking? That's what I do. It's good. For those who don't know, we usually edit it out. Usually at right about the 60-minute mark. At exactly 60-minute exactly mark. Exactly 60-minute mark. John Syracuse's, uh headset mic, which is all he'll use because he has a, a posture thing going. Uh, he, uh, his, his thing will go out. It'll go out. It'll sound like crap. It'll turn into a transformer. He unplugs it, plugs it back in. It sounds great. And now he's gotten so good that he will wait until the, the right moment, right at around the 60-minute mark when I'm blabbing about something. And he'll... No, I do it earlier than that. Oh, you do? Any, any commercial break, I mute and oh. plug and unplug. Usually when I plug and unplug, that's the part where you try to ask me something. <laughs> And then I plug it back in and you're in the middle of saying, right, John? <laughs> well, you, may, you, make it, you make it look easy. Yeah. But we will do, we will do that Microsoft uh, topic. We need to. Did yeah. you just unplug? No. Okay. You'll never know. It's, it's muted when it happens. I'm okay. not going to hear it. All right. You ever read comic books? I'm not a comic book guy. No. But you Literally. do watch the Game of Thrones thing. I do. I missed one of the episodes. I'm catching up on it now. It's a good one. Oh, it's a good series. Good. Talk about your, we got to talk about that because I know you're in, in the large. I, I did a whole incomparable episode on it. Speaking of podcasts. What episode? I'll, I'll check that one out. Is that a recent one? I think like three or four episodes back. I don't know. Since I'm not on every episode of the incomparable, I lose track of what the it's numbers weird, are. weird though that you're not. It's not weird. I couldn't handle Like they talk about stuff. They talk about comic books, for example, and I don't know anything about comic books. So how could I be on a comic book episode? I think it'd be neat to get your take on it, whether you follow it or not. You seem to have an opinion. I enjoy hearing your opinions about everything. Like, for example, we should do a show here why you don't read comic books. Let's put that down. Journaling. (laughs) Who cares why? Faith, take a letter. 
All right. Uh, so listen, we're going to wrap this thing up. If you want to hear more from John, and you should, you should follow this this young man on uh, Twitter at Syracusa Nosy. S i r a c u s a. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. You uh, you're also on Google Plus, but uh, we don't we can't share those URLs. You should set up a redirection. You should set up a domain. Like, I don't do anything on Google Plus anyway. It's not you're not missing John anything. on GooglePlus.com leads you to, you know. I think I've posted like three, four things. Oh, to I love Plus. it. There's great discussions on there. Love that. You can you see if you want to go to my Google Plus, you just go to Danzilla.com. I just redirect it because the URL is so preposterous. Uh, so you can go to five by five TV slash hypercritical slash six. And hear the show where John explains why he does not have an iPhone. I highly recommend that you do that as well. Lots of other shows on 5 by 5 that you could go and listen to. People are always criticizing me, saying I do not cross-promote the shows enough. That uh, shame on me for not cross-promoting shows. So, John, what shows, I'll let you do. What shows should people go there and listen to? Which episodes of my show or which other shows Both. on 5 by 5 Both. So... My show, you should listen to every episode. Every episode. Uh, I knew you would say that. Yeah, no, I, I would imagine everyone who listens to me already knows about these. But yeah, you have to listen to the talk show and build and analyze. And then for dessert, you should listen to Back to Work. For dessert. That is the, that is the trilogy plus Merlin. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for cross-promoting. And I would, I would also say you, uh, I'll cross-promote my own show, The Pipeline. I uh, just interviewed Aaron Hilgas of the Big Nerd Ranch. Guy used to work at Next and Apple. Worked, worked for Steve Jobs at, at one point. That's a good one. Did you listen to that one yet? I did. I liked it. It was good. Yeah, he's a good guy. Good guy to come on the show. All right. Uh, but that's it. So uh, we will see you again next time. Don't forget to check out the sponsors, easydns.com slash 5 by 5 and MailChimp.com. Have a good week, John. You too.